Today we are going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> so we can open up God's word to Romans 12. We're just going to read those two verses this morning. Romans 12, verse 12 and 13. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab the pew Bible in front of you and, and just uh, follow along with us as we study. Romans 12, verses 12 and 13. God's word says, <clears throat> Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The title of this morning's message is Why You Need a Church Family. And we don't often think just how drastically different the first century New Testament world was compared to today. In those days, consider there, there wasn't even running water. Think about how much you've depended on running water in the last 24 hours, let alone the last week. There were no phones, no cell phones, no landlines, no, no way for instant communication. There were very few doctors and no modern hospitals. If you got sick, broke a bone, you were left to deal with it on your own. Any slight complication of difficulty uh, in childbirth often resulted in death. There were no basic antibiotics, not even Tylenol. There were no traditional banks. So much of your liquid wealth had to be stashed away at home or, or carried with you. In a world where everything was a lot harder, you needed to stay connected to your community, your tribe, your extended social circles, simply to survive. That's why so often households included multiple generations and even extended family as the norm, simply for the division of labor. Today, with, with all of our conveniences, we could spend weeks on end in our homes without seeing basically anyone, and some of you like it that way. We don't need our community, and, and, and when you are more introverted, this is the default position, but that's not the way God designed the Christian life. God designed the Christian life to stay integrated into a community. This was essential in the first century. So Christians formed intimate relations within the church. Paul calls your church then a family, an interconnected body, and it's essential to a normal Christianity to, to live your life as a sacrifice and a part of your family. And so as Paul starts this section on explaining what the Christian life should look like, he gives us the principle first all the way back in Romans 12, verse 1. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Oh, beloved, the normal Christian life is not to live like you are the most important person in the world, not even the most important person in this room. You are to live like a sacrifice. Sacrifice for God. You know sacrifices die, right? We are to die to self 
as the normal course of what it means to be a Christian. And then he says, don't think too highly of yourself and all your gifts and all the things that you do and all the things you bring to the body. He says, verse five, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so having gifts that differ according to grace given to us, let's use these gifts. And he goes on to point out the ways we each have different strengths and weaknesses, different abilities designed by God to serve our church. So essential to normal sacrificial Christianity is, is staying integrated into your church family. Honestly, this takes more work today than it did in the first century world. It takes more intentionality because it's very easy for us to stay isolated. And regardless of the types of gifts that you have, every Christian is commanded in verse 10. What does he say, verse 10? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo showing honor to one another. You see, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ like family, you have to know who's a part of your family and be a member of that family. As Paul continues to give a long list of commands for the normal Christian life in this part of Romans 12, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, as he flushes out what God expects for everyday normal Christian life, we're going to see today in verses 12 and 13 three routines of the normal Christian life. And these three routines, in many ways, require us to be a part of our church family. They require our ongoing commitment to the body of Christ. Now, routines are, are, are habits. They are the ruts in the road that we slip into when we go on autopilot. And we all have routines, don't we? I mean, I think, I hope your routine is to brush your teeth twice a day. I'm just going to say that, right? We all have these things that we do just out of habit that, that we do day in and day out. So it shouldn't surprise us that as we grow as Christians and as we grow in the Christian life, part of our growth is to transform our routines to be Christianly. And part of the blessing of belonging to the body of Christ is that we aren't running this race by ourselves. We gather together every week and throughout the week with our brothers and sisters in Christ who aim to run the same race, who aim to have the same routines, and we help each other grow. And so this is really why you need a church family, as our title said. Well, the first routine that we're going to see in our text is practice God's regimen for growth. Practice God's regimen for growth. If you, want to be a run, uh, if you want to be able to run a marathon without stopping, without, without walking, there are some things you have to do to get there along the way. For starters, let's just understand that that means you have to run. Like you have to practice running, like two miles, three miles, five miles, six miles. You have to, you have to work yourself up to be able to run for the, what is it, 27.2 miles? Is that, is that what a marathon is? 26, I'm sorry. You see, I haven't run a marathon. You have to work ahead to prepare to run. You might even have to change what you eat to help get yourself in better shape. You have to do things to get ready, and something is very similar to the Christian life. You have to learn to do what you don't necessarily want to do, right? You have to push back past that runner's block 
And we have to train to run our Christian life well. In verse 12, we see three steps to God's regimen or his training process for for growth. All athletes have regimens because they want to get better. All Christians should have regimens because we want to glorify God. Let's look at verse 12, right? What are these three regimens? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. We know that God grows us through being patient in tribulation, through rejoicing in hope and being constant in prayer because it's not the first time that Paul has connected these concepts. Turn to Romans chapter five, verse two. Turn back to Romans five, verse two. We're gonna be flipping around a lot today, so keep your Bibles open and, and, and moving. I tried to put a lot of the verses up on the screen for you so you can jot them down and just make it easier. Romans five, verse two. We see basically the same concept that begins our passage in Romans 12 of having hope or rejoicing in our hope. The end of verse two, it says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But simply having the right hope, the right goal in life doesn't always mean that we're going to grow. And so so Paul continues to help us understand what's gonna make you grow. Verse three, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in our sufferings? Really, Paul? You want me to rejoice in our sufferings? Oh, we like joy in hope. We like joy in the whole good things that are gonna come, but, but joy in trials? Yes, joy in trials, because trials are exactly what God uses to help grow you into who you need to be. So he says, verse three, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That word endurance is the same word that we have in verse 12 that is patience. And the growth continues in verse 4, doesn't it? And endurance or patient endurance produces character, you might say godly character, and godly character produces that hope that you have hope in, that you have joy in, that you are looking forward to. So suffering, trials, tribulation, pain, we are told in a lot of ways is God's accelerant for growth. It's like lighter fluid on the Christian's fire. You guys ever put lighter fluid on a fire, right? You, you squeeze it up, right? This is what a trial does to your life. It helps you grow. James 1, 2 through 4 says very clearly, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's that same word in in Romans 12. Patience, endurance, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials, suffering, pain. Look, this is what God used to produce godly character and godly character that places our highest hope in Christ is our aim as the Christian. We don't place our highest hope in passing pleasures. So turn back to Romans 12. And to grow, we must first be happy in hope. We must first be happy in hope. There are all sorts of things that we look forward to, and at its basic, the word hope means to anticipate, to look forward to something. Hopes can be relatively certain, like your planned vacation or the coming of Christmas Day. You hope it's going to come. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly going to come, unless the Lord returns before. And sometimes 
Hopes can be possibilities, right? I hope I find the perfect home to buy. Or especially after this season, you might say, I hope the Lions win the Super Bowl next year. And it's reasonable, it's possible now. And there might be some appropriate joy if the Lions do win the Super Bowl. Or you find your dream home, and this is a good thing. But finding your greatest joy in these hopes is idolatry. It's only going to stunt your spiritual growth. Instead, we're said to find hope in God. And so we read verse 12, beginning of verse 12, rejoice in hope. You could say be happy in hope. Uh, Let me clue you in on something here. Happiness and joy isn't purely a responsive emotion. You understand that, right? Happiness and joy isn't always in response to something that happened to you or that's outside of your control. In fact, happiness or taking joy in is actually a a command. Rejoice, you, be happy in your hope. For some of you, this should change your whole outlook on life. A lot of people do struggle with depression and and feeling down often. You struggle often. I struggle. We all struggle because we can't figure out how to feel happy and and find joy in the situation. Like we're we're looking for joy. Oh, this is where I'm going to find joy. But God tells us the greatest, most consistent, most settled joy in life is something we decide to put on. We make the choice to be happy. And how do we do this? Because we think about our certain future hope in Christ. To remind us how Paul thinks of this hope, what this hope is, go back to chapter five again. Chapter five, verse one. Gonna be defining the hope that we have says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about that verse for a second. When it says we have peace with God through Christ, what does that mean that we had before we belonged to Christ? War with God. In fact, that is what we've been told. The first three chapters is the natural state of every single one of us. We are naturally at war with God. Why? Because because we we sin. We we struggle with sin. We we are having difficulties controlling what we want to do or what's coming out of our mouth or, or any number of things. So we are naturally at war. And the only way that we are having peace with God is through Jesus Christ because we've been justified by faith. He says, that, see that? justified by faith. What does justified mean? Declared right before God because of our trust in what Jesus has done. You see, Jesus died in our place for our sins. This is why we can have peace with God. This is why we have hope in eternal life because God punished your sin on Jesus and because he punished your sin on Jesus 
It is the one who looks to Jesus and trusts that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient that is now at peace with God, that is now justified or declared right before God. This is your greatest need. This is my greatest. This is everyone's greatest need to be right with God. And when we are right with God, we have great hope. Verse 2. Through him, that is through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith. That is access to God by faith and into this grace, this gift that we don't deserve in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice because we know that we get to be with God, that we've been reconciled with God and that we are right with God. And so hope really is a remembering of where we stand before God forever as objects of his grace, of his goodness, of his free gift of salvation to us. Everything about us and this creation will be redeemed and we'll get to enjoy perfect fellowship with God again. Uh, Paul talks about hope also in, in chapter eight. Go ahead and go there. Romans chapter eight, verse 23. We see this hope defined again. Look down at the text. Romans eight, verse 23. He says, not only the creation is groaning, you're looking, looking forward to when God return, Christ returns, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Don't you see, the, the hope that we have is that we get to be redeemed. We get to have full adoption and inclusion into God's eternal family. We get to be a part of a new creation without the effects of sin. I mean, this is incredible, right? This is what we look forward to. And he continues verse 24, right? Now hope that is seen is not hope. So if you can see it, if you get to experience this kind of hope in this life, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a greater hope for who hopes what in, what he, in what he sees. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We are looking forward to what is not yet. That is what our Christian hope is reconciliation, full reconciliation and redemption of every part of fallen creation with God. So quick two applications, okay? How can you put on, make a decision to be happy in your hope? Number one, get a good book on heaven. Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, it's got purple on it. It's one of the best. It's about this thick or so. I love that book. It's very helpful. It's very accessible for both uh, pastors as, as well as uh, lay people. It's a great book. Get a Good Book on Heaven by Randy Alcorn. You've seen the book Heaven is for Real written by this little kid about who went to heaven. That's not a good book on heaven, okay? <laughs> heaven by Randy Alcorn, great book, okay? Number two. Daily thank God for his gospel work in your life. Daily thank God for the work of the gospel in your life. And I'm going to give you a little kind of life hack to how you can do this. We have out those back doors as you're getting out of here, because everyone's going to go out the back doors and, you know, at some point in a few minutes here or 30 minutes or whatever it is, okay? You're gonna go out there and you're going to find the tracks that we have. And each of those tracks are an excellent summary of the gospel message. So go out, 
pick a track, a new track every month, one track, we don't need to take all of them, pick a track and just read through it and thank God for how this has affected your life and then go and pick another track the next week or the next month or whatever it is, right? Do that on a regular basis and pray through. Thank God for different aspects of how the gospel has worked in your life. Now notice how Romans 8.25 ends, right? We are to wait for that hope with patience. So that connects to our next point. Going back to Romans 12, we are to be patient in pain. We are to be happy in hope and patient in pain. Our second regimen for growth in the Christian life, remember this is kind of a, a training program for Christians. We are to pursue happiness and hope. We are to be patient in pain. This is the second point of uh, growth for the Christian. Specifically, patience in pain. Look at, look at verse 12 again. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And we can be patient in this tribulation or these pains or these trials because God tells us tribulations, trials, pains, distressing situations are often what God uses to grow us, to add fuel to our spiritual lives. And patience here, that, that word patience is a really interesting kind of rich word. It means to hold one's ground in the face of opposition. That's not normally what you think of when you think of patience, right? But that's included in, the, in this word. It means to remain instead of fleeing, okay? This is a word to kind of remain steadfast, to endure rather than cave in. That's why in James, this same word is translated as steadfastness. James 1, 2, and 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, the same word as being patient, that we should all aim to be. We should be, aim to be immovable in our pain, endure it with tempered, patient resolve to persevere, to suffer long without grumbling and complaining. I'm teaching our parenting Sunday school class uh, with my wife right now, and today we talked about raising boys. And one of the goals that we have in mind as we raise boys is to teach them they're, men, they're to be growing up into men who provide, which means we have to teach our boys to work hard, to endure painful situations and persevere. Well, last summer, we got to put that into practice because we went backpacking, and the last day, shortly before we were hoping to end our, you know, leisurely seven-mile hike, it started to pour down rain, and there was no way we could set up uh, our tents or anything, and so we got together, and we decided, you know what, we're going to push on the extra 11 miles to get to the car with our 40-pound packs, and we patiently endured Maybe through some tears at times, but it was glorious because we made it. That's a picture of what all Christians are called to do. Patiently endure in pain and trials. I'm not saying you have to go backpacking, okay? You guys, that might not be your thing, but you need to learn to patiently endure whatever difficulty God sees fit to bring into your life. Next time you're tempted to complain, to, to give in to temptations to sin in the ways that you know you shouldn't sin, turn to God. Ask him for help. 
And remember, with, without the trial or hard work, there's often very little growth. Well, the regimen for growth in the Christian life continues. There's a third point, a third aspect of our Christian growth. Be constant in prayer. Number three, be constant in prayer. We certainly are not excited about pain. And on some level, we are right to hate trials. There's an element of rejoicing in trials because we know it's for, for our good. But we also do not like the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. And so even though we rejoice in hope, even though we are grateful for trials, patiently enduring, the way we draw near to God, even in our pain, is to remain constant in prayer. Remain constant in prayer. Look at verse 12 again. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. This is the same thing we see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Very simply says, everyone's favorite short memory verse, right? Pray without ceasing. Pray at all types of times is what that means. You don't have to end your prayers in your day with amen. You can end it with a comma and pick it up in five minutes. The Christian takes regular advantage of short times to pray. The Christian takes regular advantage of long times to pour out our hearts to God, for God is always there. He always hears. Turn to Ephesians 6, verse 18. Turn to Ephesians 6, verse 18. And I want you to remember that the regimen for Christian growth that God prescribes is not purely private and devotional but it's contextually in Romans 12 and really in Ephesians 6 and many other places, it is inherently a group exercise. It's a race to run in fellowship with your church family. As we were trekking in the wilderness on a rainy day in the UP, like I just talked about, part of what kept us going was the encouraging words. We got this, only three more miles, I think, only two more miles or whatever it was, right? We push on, persevere. Keep our eyes fixed on the goodness of God. He's our hope. And we also pray for each other. Look at Ephesians 6, 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. And then, what does he say next? making supplications or prayers for all the saints. And also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Oh, beloved, part of how God designed us to grow is to help carry each other's burdens to the Lord in prayer. That's why we have care group ministries. That's why we share struggles with one another because we want to help encourage each other to stay in the fight. Listen, choose to be happy in hope, to be patient in pain, and be constant in prayer. Now, in the next routine, Paul shifts gears to talk about money. So number two, we see sacrificially share God's money. Number one, practice God's regimen for growth. Number two, sacrificially share God's 
money. I want you to stay in Ephesians chapter 4. All right, we're in 6, but go, go to chapter 4. Page back, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, it's been said that if you want to see the priorities of our hearts, you just look into the priorities of your budget. Jesus simply said it, Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, part of the problem is a lot of us think about money as our money. We earned it. We decide how to spend it. But there needs to be a categorical shift in every Christian's thinking. It is not my money. Every penny that I have is God's money. And so the priorities of our finances should reflect God's priorities, not mine. Look at Ephesians 4, 28. And I want you to see three stages of your, of your relationship with money. Okay, three stages of your relationship with money. He starts off, Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Right? And this doesn't necessarily mean, you know, someone who goes into the store and, you know, takes things. Although that's bad, right? You steal by not paying back debts. You steal by cheating on your taxes, right? So, so stop your thieving ways, number one. That's our first relationship to better our relationship with money. Number two, what does he say next? But rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Right? But this is where most of us stop. Most of us stop right here. We say, I'm going to be honest working. I'm going to be hard working. I'm going to be the one who, who kind of works to make sure I can provide for my family so we can have food on our table, et cetera, et cetera. But the goal is not to stay in stage two of your relationship to money. To work hard so you can spend all your money on things that you want. Remember, it's God's money. And so he gives us a stage three. He continues, verse 28, right? But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the goal. We work hard, even develop wealth so we can sacrificially share our resources. And sacrificing your wants so you can get your child everything they want is not the type of sacrificial giving Paul's talking about here. Stage one, stop stealing. Stage two, work honestly to provide for yourself and your family. And Christians are to live in stage three. Learn to be givers. Sharing God's money. All right, so that, I, I just find that verse super helpful to kind of understand our relationship to money, right? Go back to Romans 12, verse 12. Paul similarly tells us Christians should be, sorry, verse 13. Christians should be those who contribute to the needs of the saints, Certainly, the Lord is concerned about the poor, but it's not wise to give all to all the needs that we see around us. Every hurricane, every famine, every failed state in the, in the world brings poverty, and plenty of aid agencies will try to get you to help meet those needs, asking you for money. You're constantly going to be bombarded with a request for money. 
But Christians are told to have priorities in our giving. As we do good to all people, we are to, Galatians 6.10, especially do good to the household of the Lord. And he says in the context of, of giving money. It's easy to get compassion fatigue, to get tired of hearing about the next bad thing and getting asked for some money for this next bad thing. See all the horrors of the world and the constant poverty and to think, you know what, I'm just one person. And the fact of the matter is you can't help the world change. The fact of the matter is the best solutions to problems are always going to be local solutions. And so even as we care first for Christians, even Christians in places around the world, our primary concern is for Christians in our church family. And our church budget is designed to reflect the priorities of what it looks like to care for the needs of the saints. That's why every single year we give you guys the budget. We tell you how we're using our money because we want you guys to see that the money that you give is being proportioned to support what God tells us it should be supported. Look at verse 13 again, right? Contribute to the needs of the saints. The needs of the saints aren't just physical here. Perhaps more importantly, spiritual needs are included in this. And to support your church means our money will go to keep our church functioning and preserved for one another and for the next generation. I'm so grateful that almost 200 years of saints have kept this church going for the next generation. So I'm gonna argue that a bulk of our charitable giving should be given to your local church since this is your church family. This is how we continue to contribute to the needs of the saints around us. So I'm gonna walk through four ways giving to your church helps you fulfill God's commands for giving. Okay, first, you're commanded to actually support pastors. You're commanded to support pastors. I want you to turn to Galatians 6, verse 6, as I make a confession to you. This always is awkward for pastors to talk about. It's a bit self-serving. So, so let me begin by saying I'm very grateful for how the church takes care of Pastor Matt and I. Your generous support frees both of us to devote our time, devote our energy to the work of the ministry here at FBC. It is a great privilege and a blessing to be able to work full-time at our church. And this couldn't happen if you didn't contribute to the needs of the saints. I could not be the pastor that I am if I had to work outside of the church. And so I am very grateful for your generous support. And by taking care of those who labor in teaching you the word, you are doing exactly what God commands you to do. Now the same word from Romans 12 to contribute to the needs of the saints, to share God's money is also found in Galatians 6 verse 6. I want you to read that with me. Galatians 6 verse 6 says, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Right? All good things, especially in a society that didn't always use currency, is a way to just provide for the needs. We live in a society that uses currency, so it's mainly our currency. Generosity to your church should include the support of pastors, specifically by the ones who are taught by him. This is a local church command and a local church benefit. 
Listen, you're not responsible for someone else's church or for supporting a famous pastor's radio or television ministry. I mean, you can do those things, but that's not your priority. Your priority is your local church. Right, he says very clearly, verse six, one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. He even uses the word must, doesn't he? Well, he continues, verse seven, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. What's he saying? Listen, if you don't get past stage two of your relationship to money, kind of your view of money of something that I use for me and that's always my money and I can do what I want to do for my family and my, my resources, you're going to reap corruption. We give as a reflection of our hearts. Or maybe it might be better to say, we give where we know our hearts should be, even if our hearts aren't there yet. That means we give of our first fruits. It's a concept both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of giving to God before we spend anything on ourselves. As soon as the paycheck comes in, I give it to God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 9 talks about that if you want to look at that on your own. And the New Testament, our giving is specifically to your local church to help support, for example, your pastor. Now, Galatians 6, 6 is not the only place that makes this clear. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to turn here because I want you to make sure that you see that this is not my words. This is God showing you how you need to live, how you need to think about money. So turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9 is a fascinating chapter. It's the chapter where Paul tells the Corinthians um, that in spite of having every right to earn a wage for his pastoral ministry with them, he instead gave up that right when he was with them. And there were other churches who helped him and supported him as a missionary to the Corinthians and so that they didn't have to support him. But Paul is very clear that this was not to be the norm. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, what does it say? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The New Testament is the same as the Old Testament. Those who facilitate corporate worship, who teach and serve the church, should be paid by the church, which is why you give to the church. But a church budget isn't just a pastor's salary, but all that's included in allowing the church to thrive and do the ministry that we have to do. And so our second point is we, we give to our local church to support local ministry. We support pastors, but we also support local ministry. Also in 1 Corinthians 9, we see Paul making the argument that previous pastors and visiting apostles should be paid for their work in a local church. It was a practice of the early church, and it's really what honors God. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3, Paul writes this. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Look, it was typical for the church not just to barely support one man, but, but to support a whole family. 
to help pay for wives to come alongside their husbands and do valuable ministries. Paul continues, verse six, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out his grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? No, of course not. God is concerned for all those who work. And and notice that the very types of ministries and ministers that were reflected in this passage, even by the illustrations used, you got soldier, you got shepherd. The ministries of the church are to be supported by those who benefit by them. That's your local church. Practically, it means you you have money to turn on the lights and to keep a good roof over your head, right? These things are included to make sure that the church is able to function. And lastly, it draws the connection to the temple in the Old Testament. Look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians 9, 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Look, church budgets have assuredly morphed and changed over the years, but but there are two obvious content from these verses. Christians should be responsible for supporting pastors, number one. Number two, the local ministries of the church to make sure the church can function and do the work that they're called to do. That's why we are all sacrificially sharing God's money with our local church. But there's a third ministry priority for our giving. It's also reflected when we give to our local church. Number three, to support missions. To support missions. Here I want you to turn to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. Local churches are not self-absorbed, self-sustaining, us for and no more family units. Churches in every nation and in every city are a direct result of the Great Commission. And that commission remains central to our mission as a church. I find it really interesting as marketing strategists have gotten a hold of church leadership seminars and church planting seminars, there's been this push to create a unique church identity with three or maybe four trendy words like missional, anchored, connected. Like that's supposed to guide you and direct you in everything you do. It can be helpful, but but really, listen, the the mission of the church, of every church, has basically been the same for 2,000 years. It's found in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Our summary of the Great Commission is on the front of your bulletin. We exist to honor God by making new disciples of Jesus Christ and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. Churches clearly should be concerned with the nations. 
we should be concerned not just with ourselves, but with the world. So we support missions, and that, of course, includes financial support of missions. Well, this is how the church in Philippi supported missions. Look at Philippians 4, verse 15. Read there with me. 4, verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, kind of a neighboring city, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Listen, they sent money directly to Paul that sustained him and increased the fruitfulness of his ministry. Frankly, so he didn't have to focus on what he was going to eat but could focus on the things he was doing. It's the same principle that we try to use. We support missionaries who are faithful in the field to do the work that they say they're doing as a full-time job. Whether that's evangelism and church planting, equipping church leaders, or pastoring a church, missionaries are doing vital ministry to expand the reach of the gospel to all nations. And in our church budget, we aim to give over 10% of our church budget to missions and local outreach that's not directly tied to what we're doing. So when you give money to your church, it's given as a priority to support the Great Commission. Another component of missions is special offerings for urgent needs in other churches. The classic example in the New Testament of this is the Gentile churches taking up offering for the basically Jewish or the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem because they were heavily persecuted in Jerusalem and then they were quite poor. It was a beautiful sign of solidarity and an important demonstration of brotherly love in the universal church. Listen to how Paul instructs the Corinthians to help collect money in 1 Corinthians 16. You can just listen. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, uh, to collect. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. First notice it was the first day of the week, the day of corporate worship, the Lord's Day, Sunday, that the offerings were regularly collected. And next notice that the church was responsible for vetting out the rightness of the ministry that they were going to give to. You can trust elders to help determine which ministries are worth supporting. That's why we support CareNet Pregnancy Center instead of the closer pregnancy centers. That happens to be a more clearly gospel-centered pregnancy-centered than some of the ones that are closer. And we collectively get to do something as a church to help support missions or an urgent need. Can you support your own missionaries? I'm sure some of you will ask. Certainly you can. I do. But I like to think of that as above and beyond giving. An amount I give after I purpose to give my primary gifts to my local church, which will always support missions. 
Well, lastly, you, you give to your church, number four, to support needy Christians. Number four, to support needy Christians. Now, most of you know that we have a Deacon Care Fund. It's a fund that we use to help members of our church who fall on particularly hard times, maybe to help pay rent or uh, fix cars or get groceries. We want to help our church family when there's an urgent need. Obviously, obviously support for the poor in our midst is exactly what we see in the New Testament. I mean, just think of Acts chapter 2. Verse 44 and 45. You can turn there if you want. Acts 2, 44 and 45. So this is early on in the church. The church is growing massively. And this is very interesting. Verse 44. I remember reading this often, especially as a late teenager, and thinking, man, that sounds a lot like communism. Now you're going to start thinking that too, but let's, let's read it. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I don't think it's exactly like communism. There wasn't forced, you know, giving up of everything. It was free will. You could sell some. You didn't have to sell everything. You know, that, that sort of thing. We see that in the rest. But you see just this radical example, don't you, of selling property, of selling things so that you could give who, to those who are in need. There's literally hundreds, if not thousands of new Christians at this point who felt compelled to stay in Jerusalem rather than return home because this is where the only church is at this point. Other Jews in the early church, they literally lost their jobs because they confessed Christ. They weren't able to sell in the marketplace because they confessed Christ. They were put out of synagogues because they confessed Christ. I'm so grateful that we don't have anything close to the same issues of persecution and difficulties in our country right now. But as we think about our applications, this type of care for our brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't even need to go through the church's deacon care fund. You might be aware of a brother or sister in Christ and you might figure out a way to pass them on some anonymous money, a gift that you know that they need at the right time. Do that. Don't make it anonymous. Just say, hey, you know what? I wanna give you this and write them a check. And don't be too proud to not take it if you need it. Some of you might even offer interest-free loans to your brothers and sisters and say, hey, you know what? Pay it back when you can. But a profound way we should show the world the love of Christ is by showing the world that we love one another, even sacrificially sharing God's money with our church family. So go back to Romans 12 again. So Paul instructs us to sacrificially share God's money. Specifically, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. And remember, these aren't just physical needs, but includes the spiritual needs of your church family. It's a command, not just for the wealthy, but for every Christian who gets an income. And faithful giving should become a routine for the normal Christian life. Well, the last routine we'll just kind of scratch the surface of this morning is regularly open your home. Number three, last routine, regularly open your home. Just as we wrongly say and think of money as my money, so we often treat 
our home as a private sanctuary, something just for us, our own little abode. But once you shift your thinking about your money to be God's money, it becomes so much easier to see that everything that you bought with your money, including your home, is actually God's too. So we should use our homes to be a blessing for others, especially for the household of God. Verse 13, in the last part of the verse says, seek to show hospitality. When we think of hospitality, we, we think of it as hosting people for, I don't know, like a Thanksgiving dinner, full place setting, hours slaving in the kitchen, we think of immaculately cut grass for the groomed because you got to have an official bocce ball tournament in your backyard and you don't want them to have any, uh, you know, errant roles there because you have everyone over to your house once a year for your barbecue. But, but the Greek word for hospitality isn't reflected in fancy dinners and, you know, perfectly groomed grass. The Greek word for hospitality is literally loving a stranger like family. All those concepts are in one word, loving strangers like family. Part of this is because in a culture without reputable ends, if a Christian was traveling, he would have to find lodging with other Christians. They'd often come with letters of recommendation from known Christian leaders, but, but ultimately, a family would welcome in basically a stranger on the words of a neighboring church, as if they were family. All this sometimes without a warning before they came into town and came into your home like that same afternoon. Now this isn't our culture. We, we have reputable inns and people don't generally travel with letters asking to stay in homes. That's typical. But I'm sure there are plenty of people in your church family that you might describe as basically strangers. So our homes should be a place where we welcome people into our lives where we open up, where we're vulnerable about our sin struggles. Homes are where we do life on life together. Our home is where our friends' kids will cry and blow out their diapers because your home is God's home and we are supposed to use it as an extension of ministry focus to our church family. So five quick applications as we close. Number one, start young. I'm looking around to many of you young people in here. Start young. You don't need to have a nice home. You don't need to have a beautiful apartment. You don't even need to have dishes. Paper plates work great. Start young because I've known a number of people who didn't get into the habit of having people over when they were younger, and it is so hard the older you get to start new things. It is so hard. Number two, quick application. Your house doesn't have to be show ready for a realtor's magazine to have people over. Everyone's house is going to have dust in the corners. Shoes won't always be exactly where you'd like them to be. Dishes are going to be in the sink. Toys will be left out. So second point of application, your home doesn't have to be show ready. Third point of application, Aim to keep your house always somewhat presentable. I chose those words carefully. Aim to keep it somewhat presentable. Although we don't want to expect our homes to be fake, super clean homes, we don't want to be slovenly. 
keep both daily and weekly and monthly cleaning routines up. If you don't know how to keep a daily, weekly, or monthly cleaning routine, talk to a brother and sister and we'll gladly to help you figure out how do you just kind of regularly clean so that, you know what, it's been like five months since I vacuumed or dusted. That shouldn't be the case for anybody's home because you should always be willing to have someone, hey, come on over. Yeah, it's not perfect, but you know what? It's not been five months. Point number four, put hospitality on your calendar. Be intentional to have people in your home on a regular basis. You don't even have to know who it is yet. Just pick a day. We're going to have someone over this day. If you're starting with a zero on hospitality, do it once a month. Talk to your spouse, figure out a day, and figure out someone that you can invite from church to come on over, or a neighbor. If you're already doing once a month, great. Go to once a week, twice a week. Have people over in your home regularly. Do you notice verse 13? What did it say? Seek to show hospitality. It means be intentional, look for opportunities. No, no, make opportunities to have people over. And it doesn't always have to be a meal either. I mean, look, I love water and I love chips. That's fine. Anybody can do water and chips. Have someone over. Fifth point of application. Don't grumble when hospitality becomes burdensome. And it'll always become burdensome at some point. First Peter 4, 9 says very clear, clearly, show hospitality to one another, that is to your fellow church members, without grumbling. Listen, you need your church family to pursue these routines of the normal Christian life. You need your church family to help remind you to patiently persevere in trials, to, to help you do the regimen for Christian growth that God has laid out for us. You need your church family because most of the giving commands in the New Testament are practically worked out through the budget of your local church. And lastly, you need your church family to show hospitality because you need people to show hospitality too. God designed you to live in community with other Christians, not in isolation. So thank God for your church family and start having a few more people over Start praying together and talk about the hope that the Lord has given you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to study your word, that we've been able to think about these truths that we've seen, these kind of commands, these descriptions of normal Christian living. Lord, it is, uh, I'm sure, convicting for others as it has been for me. I pray that you would use our lives to reflect godly Christian living and godly Christian priorities. Lord, help us to talk about these things with our spouses. Help us to be faithful to think about these things with our friends. Lord, just even practically, I pray that everyone would remember just to get a uh, gospel track and just pray through that so that they remember the hope that comes in Christ through the gospel. May that be a great encouragement this week as we aim to set our focus where it needs to be. Help us to run the race set before us, to be patient, steadfast in trials, finding our greatest hope in you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.